Hello, and welcome to Business Without Bullshit. I'm Andy Ori, and alongside me is my co-host, Pippa Sturt. Hi, Andy. Hello, and today we are joined by Neil Parker, uh, here to help us with a particularly complicated problem, which I guess comes under the subject of globalization, which therefore means, you know, all of our economies have become interlinked and are trading on a level that only seems to be increasing. But that really means that at the same time, what is going on economically is incredibly complicated. But we need to understand some principles, I think, as you know, anyone trying to do businesses, you know, are interest rates just gonna go up forever um you know what is what is what is going on so here we go um neil welcome to the podcast thank you for having me and now let's just start by getting your actual job title correct what is your technical position in the bank so i'm a market strategist for natwest market so I, i work with the financial markets business of NatWest. And did you, does, do you do the people who do that generally train as economists? So you're an economist by training? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so you start off looking at economics, studying economics, and then eventually you move into analyzing the markets. So we look at things slightly differently. We're not really that fussed about the direction of travel of macroeconomics per se. What we are interested in is how that then influences the financial markets. Okay, so in in terms of you're not the big changes in macroeconomics. So what that what that's war. That's 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 the big stuff. Is it going on? That's not so much your issue. Your issue is how that impacts how what equities are being traded, or not so much equities, more foreign exchange and interest rate markets. So it's a, it's the big um, foreign exchange markets like sterling against the dollar, euro dollar, and so on, and, and then. More uh, from an interest rate perspective, the uh, interest rate outlook. So what is predicted by markets for where where, uh, interest rates are going to be heading? Of course, because the the bank is concerned, the bank's moves money about foreign exchange, that it's concerned with where that's going and it placing the right bets as it moves forward. Is that, you know, I'm sure they wouldn't want to use the word bets, but effectively, you know, making the right choices. Well, it's, it's more so looking at how this will affect our clients. Uh, rather than the bank. The bank doesn't really take any positions, um, but our our clients certainly do. So we're looking to make sure that our clients are the best informed that they can be about potential moves in foreign exchange or interest rates. So you must be living in interesting times right now then? I I think we've been living in interesting times for the last 12, 13 years, really since the financial crisis. Since the Tory government. (laughs) <laughs> well, well, no, 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 before then, before um, uh, during the financial crisis. Twelve years, twelve years. I, I think I said thirteen, which is um, <laughs> slightly before then. But no, okay, really, no, since the financial crisis, mm-hmm. the aftermath of the financial crisis, I think, has uh, uh, still has its tentacles in a lot of what we see today, as far as behaviours are concerned, business decision making, and so on. I, I don't think we've ever really left that behind us. So we've just all been shutting our eyes and, and singing really loudly and waiting for it to go away, is that? I think we've been hoping that with enough time passing, things would get better, but not oh, necessarily... Well, that was stupid. <laughs> not necessarily doing anything to make it more likely that things w- would get better. And, and from the perspective of authorities, they've been firefighting for the, for the best part of the last sort of 14, mm. 15 years. So let, let's try and, like take some simple principles to understand it. So obviously there's this huge fucking thing in 2008 that we're talking about, the global financial crisis, which was 
which was uh, thanks to some uh, films like uh, The Big Short, but really was 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 a bet, um, you know, it was to do with these sort of bad debts, effectively, that had been built up and packaged together and no one was really sure. You're saying that that moment is still, you know, affecting us deeply. And what, what you know, are we able to break this into some sort of simple-ish principles that are sort of going on here? So, so if we look at uh, one of the consequences of the global financial crisis, it was that interest rates hit record lows. But added to that, central banks felt as if they needed an additional tool. So they employed or deployed something called quantitative easing, which is printing money. Now, if you do that personally, you'll get locked up. But if central banks do it, then it's seen as just adding additional liquidity. But we never got away from that. We, we had hundreds of billions in the UK, we had trillions in Europe, we had multiple trillions in the US that was printed over a relatively short space of time that we never absorbed. So we had that. What do you mean we never absorbed it? Because like, I never understand why, like, when the Germans printed money and the famous pictures, the currency just went to shit, you know, inflation went through the roof. Why did that not happen? We weren't printing enough money? What do you or? think inflation is doing right now? Well, it is now, but it's a pretty long delay from, you know, we started quantitative easing. I thought Britain didn't do it until more recently. But no, we've been no doing we, it. Did, we did it in 2009. Um, we were uh, printing alongside the Federal Reserve. The uh, likes of the European Central Bank were much later in terms of their beginning of printing money, but they then printed it pretty aggressively from around about sort of 20, end of 2014 onwards. The printing of money didn't create inflation because at the time, there are two elements to money supply. One is money velocity, so the speed at which it goes through the economy. The other is the, the actual volume. And at the time that they were printing a lot more money, the speed at which the money was flowing through the economy had slowed dramatically. So it, it was a case of the two things kind of set off one so another. So people were just not spending it? It wasn't that they weren't spending it. It was that... The money was deployed in certain areas where it, it didn't go where it was expected to go. Right. So, so imagine that, that you're printing all this money, you're expecting it to then lead to a significant amount of new investment. Yeah. But instead, you just invest in what's already there. So whether that's equities or, or other asset classes, you invest in what, what's there already. So it does create inflation, but not general inflation. It creates inflation in things like equity prices or prices. Ah, where it has gone. Yeah. But hang on, okay, the central bank starts printing all this money. They're not standing in the street going, well, here we go, mate, it's a thousand pounds, a thousand pounds, which is what Australia seemed to do at the time. I think they gave everyone a thousand dollars, didn't they, to try and... But where, that money, they print that money and, and they do what with it? They then offer, you know... So they were predominantly, for the Bank of England as an example, they were predominantly buying government gilts. So these were, these were gilts in issuance. They weren't buying them as... Uh, uh, like before they were issued, they were buying stuff that was already in issue. So they were absorbing... To, to, to prop up the value internationally of this thing. So the central bank rebuys its own things, effectively. Well, no, they weren't buying their own thing. They were, uh, remember, there is a... a, 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 a Chinese very war. Yes. So, so the central bank is, is not linked directly to the government. The government issues debt through the treasury. Mm-hmm. And then the Bank of England chooses and selects to buy which debt okay. it wants to. But what they were doing is they were buying government gilts and they were therefore suppressing yields across the, the entire yield curve. So it was keeping the cost of borrowing down. 
in the hope, I think, that that was going to then spur additional investment because the cost of investment was cheap and the potential returns Which, on those what, investments. What yields, are you, just to keep it really, so we get it like really clear in our minds, the yields on the gilts. Yeah. So you were getting less return on your gilts yeah. because someone's just buying them up, basically. So they're, 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 they're easy to sell, effectively. So why do I need to give a good yield? Is that Precisely. The, okay. Precisely. But because of that also, that then has a knock-on effect onto the cost of corporate borrowing as well because corporate borrowing is related directly to the cost of government borrowing. There's a spread, depending on what the credit rating of a corporate bond is relative to a government bond. So there will be a spread associated. And as in, and corporate borrowing would be also low at the time, would it? Or it would be going higher, would it? In terms, in terms of the borrowing rates, it was very low. It was basically at historically low levels. So it created inflation, but as we're all kind of well aware, there's been huge inflation in equities, but felt like that was to do with the fact that I wasn't getting interest in the bank account. So everyone was like, well, fuck it, I may as well invest in a company. You know, I may as well and see where that takes me. Yep. But you're saying that, you the okay, it wasn't going where it needed to go, but they carried on doing it anyway for years. Yeah, and, and it was probably responsible in, in large part for the, for the rise of crypto as well because you had no, uh, for, for, for cryptocurrencies, they were providing predominantly no yield um, and therefore it was purely a, a, a play on the relative capital value. Mm. Yeah. Um, but because yields were at historic low levels, in some cases, the lowest that we've ever seen, it opened the door to alternative investments, more so than you would have seen had interest rates been sort of 1% or 2% higher. Is a gilt the same as a bond? Yes. It's the same so, so, so a gilt is, is the UK government bonds. Oh, that's literally what they are. Yeah. Okay, that's the name of them. Did you know that? Because they're gilt I think I knew that. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Buy in France. Um Okay, and so where are we now? What, what, you know, what? <laughs> in twenty words or less, what do you think is going on with the world economy now? And you know, again, what are the sort of principles, the the main sort of, I guess, levers or things that are sort of pushing it around? Do you think? I'm not sure I can do that in twenty words. Oh, oh yeah, you can. Um, <laughs> in, ter- in, in, yeah. in in terms of what's happening with the world economy at the moment, it's a supply led. Problem. It's a supply shock. And it's a supply shock that is a hangover from COVID because we still have a lot of economies that are suffering with COVID and reinfections. And, uh, and as a consequence, they have shutdowns. We saw that in China recently as an example, where a number of factories had to literally close their doors and seal mm-hmm. their employees inside oh for, 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 for days and some, in some cases weeks. That means that there's no supply. Nothing gets in, nothing gets out. Additionally, if you then take that on to what's happening at ports, that will delay the loading of ships, it will delay the transportation of goods. All of this is actually a labour-related problem. It's a labour-related problem because the common denominator in all of this is a shortage of labour at any point within the production cycle from the production of raw materials through to the production of the final product. Even the retail of that product has been affected by labour shortages as well. So this is, you know, the principle here is, is the, the inflation that we're seeing, or much of the inflation that we're seeing, has been prompted by labour shortages. And is it compounded by this quantitative easing? Like, are they still quantitative easing now? Are they still trying to pump money in the economy? No, you're, you've now got from the US and beginning from the uh, 
Bank of England a quantitative tightening where they're going to reduce the level of assets purchased. So they will either allow them to roll off when they come to maturity, they won't buy more, or they'll they'll actually actively sell into the market. Okay, so quantitative tightening is not what I assumed it would be, which is somebody running around grabbing notes. Yeah, it's just people. we're going to do less quantitative easing. No, no, it's shape. not like a game of the crystal maze where you. Yeah, that's try and exactly grab what I was. That was exactly <laughs> the image in my head. Yeah. I'm not going to uh, lie. But they are they are doing that in a sense. <laughs> that's going to come a hundred years time. Central Bank of England going to do the crystal maze. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're, what they're what they're doing is that they are withdrawing liquidity from, from from the market. So the bonds that they had previously purchased from investors are then selling back to investors. So there's less money for other. Um, purchases, other asset purchases, whether that's in equities or, or, or less assets. money for the people that are normally they're normally buying these up and giving them the cash. You then do other things with them, precisely. But they're still quantitative easing. They're not going down to zero. They're just sort of no. slowing down. No, so no, no, sorry, like no. They're not slowing it. down. They are. So, so the the idea is there will be less money that that the that the Bank of England have deployed in bond markets. So that they will still have a positive balance, but a lower positive balance. So if you think at the moment it's around eight hundred and ninety-five billion pounds of, <laughs> of quantitative easing. So um, these numbers these don't days. Don't think about the number. They're going to reduce it'll just make that your head explode. Around about by by, by uh, ten billion pounds every six weeks or so. Okay. So I suppose making less liquidity in the market doesn't necessarily sound like a good thing, like a thing that would encourage growth, for example, which is what everybody seems to be talking about. So there's two things that the central banks are doing at the moment that won't encourage growth. One is is what we've just talked about in terms of quantitative tightening. The second is raising interest rates. Um, And they're looking to do that because they think they've lost control of inflation and they see inflation predominantly as a demand side situation. So if they can reduce demand sufficiently, then inflation will come back into balance. Well, if none of us buy anything because we don't have any money, prices will go down. To a degree, but this is where I think the Bank of England have got a problem because they've dealt for the last, uh, prior to them being operationally independent for the setting of monetary policy, and subsequent to that, they've assumed that all shocks to the economy are going to be demand-side. This is the first proper supply-side shock that we face. Right. All shocks to the economy will be demand side. They'll all be about consumers not buying enough stuff. Or having borrowed way too much. Yeah. 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 Monetary policy has generally worked very well since it was, or monetary policy control has worked very well since it was introduced in the early 1980s. Yeah. Um, so it was Milton Friedman's... Uh, Phillips monetary. curve, isn't it? No, no, and let's not get into that because that's a whole <laughs> other podcast. Yeah. Um, but but uh, Milton Friedman had this idea about um, being able to pull the levers of the economy purely by adjusting interest rates. Yeah. And, and what you were doing was effective... Well, think of it as a tap, turning off and on demand. Mm. Yeah. Um, but so you don't necessarily want to turn it off and on. You just maybe want to slow it down or speed it up, dependent on, on, on where you are in the economic cycle. So the idea is, is that you, you turn the dial down or you turn the dial up and you get the, the, the prerequisite result. But that is assuming that what you've got is a demand side problem. And I don't think that's what you've got at the moment. I think what you've got and what is clearly evident and the fact that all of the central banks have missed it um, was that this was a supply side problem realistically, from the early stages of 2021. 
And the Bank of England missed it, the Federal Reserve missed it, the European Central Bank missed it, because they weren't really watching. And by the time that they recognised that there was a problem, it was too late. It seems quite surprising, though, because there was such a supply problem. It was all over the news. Everyone was like, well, you know, what the hell? We can't get anything. But they're not, they're not seeing it. But the assumption was it was temporary, that yeah. over time that this whole pandemic thing would, would go away. And therefore, we'd all go back to normal in terms of our working practices. Whereas, actually, another nine months has, has transpired since that point. Since we started seeing interest rate tightening, um, and it hasn't worked. You you haven't been able to dial down demand to meet supply. Is that partly why it's a little bit worse in the UK, is that there are other issues that are making supply difficult here other than the global situation? I, I think the reason that it's probably a, a bit worse in the UK is actually because of the structure of the UK economy. Right. And that the UK economy is far more... Uh, consumer-led than a number of others. We've got a smaller industrial sector than yeah. the likes of the US yeah, or Europe. economy and e-commerce economy. Precisely. And I think that's what we've seen with regard to uh, the UK's problems is that actually we are predominantly a price taker from the rest of the world. Price taker meaning we just we accept whatever we're being well, sold at. Well, yeah. we 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 have no option because rip off Britain. I remember being a thing <laughs> years back. Yeah, we, I, I wouldn't put it that way, but but we're we're, we're basically uh, beholden to other countries to yeah. supply us because we we either don't have the natural resources here because it's cold and wet normally, apart from this year. I, I would somewhat disagree with that. I do live in Kent, though, so obviously I live the in garden the, of the Garden England. of England. So I would definitely disagree <laughs> with that. It's a beautiful, beautiful country. But but the, the big issue is that even if we were to bring back a lot of manufacturing to this country, we would still have to import the raw materials. Yeah. So you, you are always going to have that element of, of, of being beholden to another country to supply you, yeah. regardless of, of what it is that you're producing. Equally as well... Uh, the likes of things like agriculture is very energy intensive. Now, we are not a, a net energy exporter. We are an energy importer. And mm. consequently, we are beholden to other countries, beholden to the international price for energy for the, the price of a lot of our other goods. If I can sum up what you're saying, it feels like you're saying we're fucked. Again, I wouldn't put it in that term, uh, in those terms, but I, I do think that the UK is uniquely disadvantaged. <laughs> That's a nice way of putting it, uh, ladies and gentlemen. That means fucked. As far as the, the the performance of the UK economy going forward for the next eighteen months or so, and I think the Bank of England admitted this to a degree, they they are going to have to create quite a a sharp interruption in economic activity in order to get the results that they want as far as inflation is concerned. Mm-hmm. Meaning, like, interest rates, like, you know, 10% or something? No, or we, I mean, like, to do that would be to completely destroy uh, economic activity in the UK. Yeah. Um, and remember that interest rates don't just affect the demand side, they also affect the supply side. So you don't want to hammer the supply side any worse than it's already been affected. So, so from the perspective of what, what the Bank of England is saying, they think that a short, sharp shock to the demand side will be sufficient to bring inflation and inflation expectations well, I back I can't down. get my head around that. So you, you, you turn up interest rates and then we don't have as much money, so we don't buy as much stuff, so the demand goes down. 
So inflation drops because people are like, oh, no one's buying this shit, I better sell it cheaper. Well, if you think back to, uh, again, going back to the financial crisis, one of the effects of, of the financial crisis was that we'd stop buying cars. Yeah. So what happened to the price of vehicles? They went down. Vehicle manufacturers effectively just wanted their money yeah. for the production mm. of the vehicles that they'd already produced rather than charging an additional percentage on top to make a profit. Yeah. That's the that's the theory. The, the question then, is whether whether we are in control like we, we want to think we are with regard to pricing, or whether again we are more more widespread price takers, in which case it really doesn't matter what the Bank of England does, because we're beholden to much larger economies like that of the US to 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 better adjust their demand in order to bring down global pricing. Right, because it, we just we're just a blip on the spreadsheet. In the end, we're not like, oh, Britain's not buying as many. Oh well, whatever. Do we really care? You, you. It's not enough of a indicator to a manufacturer, and also the limit to how much they can reduce it. You know, I think about this all the time. Someone said, you know, there will never be another China to enter the global economy, and how how it brought all these prices down for us. I mean, I'm in a toy shop two days ago, and you know, and and we 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 pick one toy which is like you know 20 euros, and it's like some really sophisticated thing made in China. I mean, it, just when you grew up, it would have cost 100 pounds. Then it would have cost you know it should cost 500 now. I mean, this is a sophisticated toy. And then we picked up another one, like a wooden toy that was a rainbow, and that was like 45 euros because it was made in. in it was actually made Hand in Europe. Carved. And and obviously my friend was like, oh, this is ridiculous. What is this one? We don't want to buy this one. This one's so crazy. And, and then she said, oh, it's, I, I said it, as she said, I said, I bet it's made, not made in China. And it's like, yeah. And then you're like, wow, how do we even get over this addiction now? And what it makes is things disposable. That's what I realized is that we're also disposable now because everything, we bought a pair of sunglasses, is four euros. And you're like, oh, it's four euros, you know, if I lose them, yeah, I Yeah, but the care. problem is you then throw them away and they go in landfill and they that, make that's the... That's exactly what I'm saying. We've, we've become disposable. So the demand, the demand is bigger than it should be because back in the day you'd buy something and you'd keep it for 20 years and now and you do bloody keep it if it costs you 100 quid and you don't give them a sod if it you know so there's some re I mean I agree with your your point in in a different way is that you know what's going to happen to global prices is 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 well uh, you know they they're going to stay up they're going to have to go up because China either China otherwise China's not winning it's not increasing you know but China, I mean China's been one of the big winners throughout the, uh, the, the period post the financial crisis. If you look at the performance of the Chinese economy relative to the global economy, China has grown its market share. And, and that accelerated, and it was accelerated by the pandemic. Yeah. So China have, have, have actually been very successful throughout that period, but they have a lot of challenges as well. To your point with regard to, you know, China will have to increase its prices. China will have to increase its prices because of the debt burden that China has. I never think they're in debt. They are like massively in. Who are they in debt to? They just sell us everything. Well, they're generally in debt to themselves, which right. doesn't sound like a bad thing. But remember, Ireland was basically in debt to itself. But the problem is, is that they are a, a much more of a global economy in terms of that they sell to everybody. They have a lot more joint ventures than a lot of the other surrounding economies in in Asia. Consequently, the debt actually matters, and it matters because we've seen. Back in the 2000s, we saw a, an equity market crisis. We saw a housing market crisis. We've seen problems emerge in China. We saw the glimmerings last year of a problem within their commercial real estate 
sector with Evergrande. So China does have issues, um, which means that they are going to have to sell for more. But to your point about, well, there's never going to be another China. Well, there was never meant to be a China. Yeah. Because we were buying it all from Taiwan. Yeah. Or Japan. Mm. Yeah, Taiwan, or Korea. Japan. Yeah. So I'm much more optimistic that the, the, the whole globalization piece is yet to have fully run its course. Yeah. Because there isn't the, 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 the route back to nearshoring or reshoring a lot of the production. In order to do that, by the way, if you were to take 10% of Chinese production and move it to the UK, how much would UK industry have to grow by? About 150%. So that's, that, that's the challenge that we have in terms of this whole 10, 10% idea. 10% of Chinese global production or 10% of what we so, buy no, from sorry, China? Sorry, 10% of Chinese global production yeah, to yeah. move it back to the UK. So that's all size relative to China and it's like a P... Oh, that's that funny comment when we all got yeah, the Brexit argument. We all got obsessed about um, doing trade for New Zealand, and someone said uh, China adds a new New Zealand to its its balance sheet every month or something. It was like, oh, okay, wow. But but again, you you could you talked about the sort of plastic production and everything else from from the likes of China. Ultimately, the, all of this has been outsourced, and it's been outsourced because it's cheaper to produce it there and ship it halfway around the world yeah. in terms of the end cost point than it was to produce nearby. And then the trouble is, is you get the skills gap. This other person, they would make it, they had fans, you know, like Spanish uh, flamenco fans. And I was trying to find one not made in China. And then the guy was like, no, no, uh, they shut the factory down. They, they went to China, trained them how to do it. And then they put them out of business and we shut the factory down here. And you cannot buy a Spanish flamenco fan in Spain. I mean, maybe you can, but this guy, I, and I believe him. I'm sure you can if you, if you search hard far enough. And, and but but, enough. but you, there's, it's, there's a second element to it, which is this skills gap that it's like, even if you want to now do it, you've got to get them to come and come and show you how to do it almost, you know. But I would put the, the, the logical follow-on question for that is, do they want to continue to do it? China. Only if it's profitable and only until they find something that's more profitable. Yeah. Okay, that's an interesting point. So hang on. So the, we, we were printing money, creating some sort of, we were trying to sort of, we knew we were pushing problems forward. I mean, everyone kind of knew that's what was going on. It's the same thing in COVID. We knew that like, giving everybody money is going to create problems. And we're just, we've sort of decided now that we're a bit better. You know, we've learned from the past and it's better to just try and smooth it out and keep pushing it down the road, keep pushing it down the road. Because at the same time, no one quite understands. It's like almost impossible to understand how it's all going to interlink and it's chaos effectively in a way, you know, it's some sort of beautiful chaos. So now we're in a place where effectively is a supply side problem. So the Bank of England, you feel, is still fairly convinced that it's going to it's going to peak up interest rates to a point at which we all feel the pain enough that we all stop buying, and then the prices maybe level off. But your feeling is maybe that's because if it's a supply side problem, that's not going to work. Or I think that the Bank of England will will admit that they've got their forecasts very wrong, and as a consequence. They're, they're not as confident as they were that the action will actually work. Because what's happened to inflation since they started to put up rates? It's gone up. It's gone up. And, and it's it's going to peak now at about three times what they previously predicted. What, 10% or something? or No, about 13.5% is wow. where they see the peak, which will happen in October. And, and it might still peak higher than that, dependent on where gas prices go between well, here and now. Did you see Cornwall Insight 
came out today and said that they reckon the energy price cap will go up 81% in October. Mm -hmm. Wow. And then another 19% just to round off the 100% in January. In January, the average um, energy bill will be 4,000 and something. Yes. Wow. I mean, I, I didn't see that. I did see on Twitter, Fergal Sharkey was complaining about his um, energy bill. I don't know whether you know who Fergal Sharkey yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. He was on uh, the, the radio this morning, actually. 80s <laughs> singer. He's a classic. Yeah. He, he's, he's very um, into environmental issues. But, but uh, herein is, is another issue for um, the governments to, to deal with, which is that they were prepared to turn off the taps of investment and have actually very successfully turned off the taps of investment in traditional energy sources without sufficient critical mass being built in the greener, mm. zero, yeah. zero carbon sources of energy production. And you always need contingency. You always need redundancy within energy supply. Uh, you know, but you particularly need it if the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. Is that why? Because we aren't that reliant on... We get most of our gas from Norway, basically, and have done for ages. We actually get quite a lot of our gas from Qatar as well. We signed a multi-year oh, deal yeah. from Qatar. Qatar, who are good old friends in the, in the British Army. I know we've always been involved, um, I think, anyway. But, yeah, so why, if there's a gas problem coming out of Russia, why does it affect us? Because now now we're, we're, we're having to sell our gas back or...? No, but it's a, a a global energy price, and we're not getting all of our energy from... Oh, the gas price is a fixed market price. And well, it's not, it. it's not a fixed price, but, but let's put it this way. If you could buy gas somewhere in the rest of the world at 50% cheaper than you're buying it from, let's say, Russia, you're not going to buy it from Russia, you'll buy it from the other place. Yeah. But, of course, the more you buy it from the other place, the less they're going to have, and the more the pri their price yeah, is yeah. going to go up. So it all just equals So out. it'll arbitrage itself out yeah. over time. Um, I mean, there, there was a story over the weekend, as an example, that Norway were going to reduce their exports of gas, uh, and that has had a, 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 an effect, a positive effect on gas prices as well. Yeah, well. Because there is a lot more demand from Europe for North Sea gas than there was previously. So how do, how do, we, how do we sort the energy problem out? Well, the answer is, sadly, there isn't a sort of quick fix to it. There is a multi-year fix. You will have seen, for example, um, the potential for investment in small nuclear power I was power going to say, nuclear feels like the one we've all kind of suddenly gone, oh shit, what about nuclear? That could actually solve these problems. Well, it, it can solve it, but not by building something that costs you multiple tens of billions. Also, how long does it take to build a nuclear power plant? We should have, you know, if we were going to do it, we probably should have started. Well, we may as well start now, ground. though. But in the smaller ones, they're based around um, the same technology that you use for nuclear subs. And, and those, and those are the ones you just seal after 20 years or something. They, I, I, I'm, I'm not yeah. an expert on this, but, but in terms of the amount of energy that it can produce it can it can produce sufficient energy that it would power several sort of large towns and so you need to deploy those around the country but then you come to people, people that get don't nervous. want a nuclear power plant near their house yeah, yeah. particularly um, when you know they're bombing the nuclear power plant in ukraine and we can all see it on tv but there, there has to be a much more universal and unified approach by the, the, the Western developed world with regard to how they're going to produce safe, clean energy and also store it. Mm. And that's the, mm. the other piece of the puzzle here, which uh, I, I think it's a lack of storage that has been, uh, been problematic. 
in terms of driving up electricity prices on top of gas prices. Somebody was talking on the radio the other day about sand. Oh, yeah. And the fact that sa- sand is an amazing storage vehicle for energy. They've launched oh, right. the first ever sand battery, is what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. It's just a big fucking pile of sand that they heat up and it stays warm for ages. And ages. I had not heard of that. Yeah. So um, Okay, so out of this, the bank's starting to think, mm. so they're going to keep going, turning up interest rates, do you think? To, a, a, to a degree, yes. I mean, so you said 18 months, right? Or did I make that? You seem to think there was a kind of 18-month cycle coming up. Well, I, I think that that realistically we're we're probably beyond the peak, well beyond the peak as far as economic activity is concerned. We will see a contraction in the UK economy over the well. We're already potentially in contraction uh, as far as the Q2 numbers ought to see a a small fall in economic output, and then probably until the end of 2023, we'll see further falls in output. So that is roughly 18, 18 months. months. It's slightly more than 18 months. It's it, it's seven quarters. The Bank of England think it's five quarters. Um, and that's regardless, by the way, of what they do with interest rates from here. So even if they left interest rates where they are now, they still expect the recession to be um, at least five quarters and about a 1.4% fall in economic output. If we see interest rates rising in line with market expectations, which when they did the forecast was rates going up to just above two and three quarters percent. Then they thought that the fall in economic output would be around 2.2%. I think it's going to be larger than that because I can't work out how they get to some of their numbers. Like, for example, they think there's going to be a three and a half percent reduction in real disposable incomes. But that would then assume that Somehow, if inflation peaks at 13.3%, A, it has to come down very quickly, and B, wages have to remain pretty sticky where they are at the moment. But the labour market, for me, is the one piece of the puzzle mm. that hasn't yet seen a significant drop in economic out- in, in, um, in, the, in its levels because it's lagging the UK economy. But when the labour market starts to correct and we start to see the job losses, which we will, that could be a, a, a really it's big It's weird negative. the way we're not seeing the job losses, isn't it? I mean, is it normal for it to lag this much? Yeah, I mean, between six and 12 months is a normal lag on, on the labour market between the, the, the peak in economic... Because the, the employers try to keep the staff happy and they plough on and then they start their reserves start running low and then they have to take cuts. It's sort of... Well, if you think about the way in which a lot of businesses do business, they, they've probably got things... 12 months in advance. They've got orders 12 months in mm. advance. Yeah, okay. So it's not going to be immediate. Yeah. It's one of the things, when, when, when we look back at Brexit, and you heard all of these economists suggesting that there was going to be an immediate recession, number one, that wasn't possible because you'd have had to have a negative quarter of growth going into yeah. um, the Brexit vote and then another one immediately after. So that wasn't possible, but also... Um, a lot of businesses were still operating with latent order uh, books for about 12, 18 months thereafter. Yeah. And that it also took into no account the fact that having a weaker currency had a, a very uh, sizable net positive effect on areas of discretionary consumer spending from overseas. People came to the UK and went, oh, look, it's 20% cheaper than it is. Yeah, I remember um, the bubble mm, period. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, that there is a lot of difference between the, the the academic theory and the reality. But for something like this that we're seeing at the moment, the labour market's holding up, but it's holding up because of order books that are still yet to run their course. 
By the time we reach the end of the third quarter into the early stage of the fourth quarter, a lot of those orders will have rolled off and the order books will look much less attractive than they currently do. There is another element, I think, which is that the, there is this new economy being created in so many different fields, the disruptors, Pippa. But oh, <laughs> why did you have to say that? Um, but no, there is. You know, you look at life science or you look at e-commerce, but you look even deeper than that. You look at what services and things we're consuming, you know, whether it be the metaverse and how, you know, I'm, 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 I, you know, maybe I don't even go on holiday. I'm going to, I'm going to take a nap. You know, there's just, there's all sorts of crazy shit happening. And that, that is sucking jobs still. That sort of, you know, there is, and, and maybe that's the second delay is all these sort of uh, startups and everything. They've got funding for an, a few months and funding is dropping off. Yeah. I mean, yeah. private equity definitely, um, is one of those areas of the UK economy that's operating at a different level to virtually everything else. And they're providing a lot of the funding into those startups. Yeah. But, and there's always a but in these sorts of things, but that can't continue because there has to be a payoff. It's all well and good providing the seed capital for those sorts of businesses. But what happens when those businesses don't make the returns that you're expecting? Because all of a sudden, the, the real economy isn't spending the money. I'll give you, give you a very, very, very stark example of this. So the headline figures from the British Retail Consortium and Barclay Card today about July spending, they look very robust. Spending up like 4%, 4.5%, 7.7% year on year on the Barclay Card numbers. And then Barclay Card, the, 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 um, the, the spokesman for Barclay Card said, but of course inflation's running above that. So this is a real terms volume reduction in spending. So we're paying more, but buying less. And all those things that you're talking about, like these brilliant new ideas and new tech and new stuff, are all sort of discretionary spending, right? Most of it. Like, so if I'm, you know, if inflation has gone up and I'm finding that my pay packet isn't going as far, then that's not the thing I'm going to spend my money on. Because yeah. I'm going to have to spend it all on energy, as it turns out. Yeah. And, and, and this, this is the other thing. I mean, like, in the midst of the pandemic, we had relatively few choices. And so there were a number of businesses that did very well. A lot of the paid subscription services, as an example, uh, a lot of takeaway services. Magnum did very well out of me, I'll tell you that. Magnum ice cream. Yeah, because it's the only ice cream they had in Sainsbury's <laughs> throughout the pandemic. So, so, so the, the problem for that is that, that they were going up against nothing. There was no competition. Now there's competition from going out or from the fact that, as, as you've already said, Philippa, like you're going to end up having to spend more on the things that you need rather than the things that you want. Well, I think some of that, some of those things, so sort of delivery companies is a good one, as in food delivery, takeaway, you know, delivery services, because they did do incredibly well during Brexit, understandably, the just eats and the deliveries of this world. They're not doing so well now because people are going out more. But will a contraction mean that people go, well, if we stay in and get a takeaway, it's going to cost us 10 quid less, let's do that? Yeah, I mean, I think they, 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 they could do reasonably well, but that there, there is also going to be... Let's say the, the, the income bracket that would go out and eat then eats in, but the mm. income bracket that was going to eat in is now going to go to the supermarket and buy the ingredients and cook for themselves. Yeah. So there's going there's going to be a consequential loss all the way down the income curve. 
Uh, and I, I think that's the thing that, that, that I would worry about here is that you're talking about such huge income destruction or potential income destruction unless we're going to see average earnings and wages rising in double digits, at which point the Bank of England will be even more determined to keep increasing interest rates to try and choke off the demand side. So it's actually a vicious circle. Wait, 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 I lost there. Why does the demand go up still? Well, uh, if, if we all sorry. get paid more. Oh, if of course, we all get paid, paid more. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay, we're yeah. getting more so money. So do, what does reducing taxes do to that, if we were to say, as mistrust does, that we should all have our taxes reduced? Well... <laughs> It depends where you're going to reduce taxes. So let's say you were to give everybody a VAT cut. That might actually have very limited impact with regard to overall levels of spending because actually VAT is generally levied against discretionary purchases rather than necessity, with the exception of uh, a few things like energy and, and fuel. But it won't make any difference to food prices. It might make a difference eventually to food prices in terms of reducing the energy cost of production. But again, you're talking about a severe lag before it has any material well, so impact. So retailers can easily take up the slack is the other thing. You know, the, and, last, the last chain of supply will generally say, well, we'll we need the money, so we're going to take it. You know? And there were uh, examples going back to the last time we saw a VAT cut in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis yeah. where it wasn't fully passed on. So that's, that, that's one error. If you were to cut things like national insurance, mm-hmm. well, you're just reversing the hike of national insurance yeah. anyway. Um, and it has a disproportionate effect of the, for those on higher incomes than it does on lower incomes. Lower incomes get a small improvement, but that's probably going to be completely eaten away by the, the rise in energy prices. So yeah. it makes them no better off. Again, does it have the material effect on demand that you're hoping for? Probably not. Income tax cuts, same problem. Corporation tax cuts, you're helping businesses, but you're not necessarily... But it's not necessarily trickling down to the people that really need it. Precisely. And and fiscal policy, in any case, is is another area that has a severe lag to implementation versus effect. So there's nothing that you can do, uh, and I think most... Most politicians recognise there's nothing you can do immediately to make that much difference, other than the things that have already been done to try and assist people with their energy bills, so taking money out of their energy bills. But quite frankly, even that versus what energy prices are doing at the moment is going to have a limited benefit. And what what do you think about? You know, this is maybe slightly an unfair question, but, you know, over the last couple of days, there's been all this stuff. There's been Gordon Brown, who frankly saved the world last time, so he might as well do it again. But Gordon Brown coming out and saying they should be talking about it now and working it out now so that it can be in place for October so that, you know, when the energy... I mean, is that sensible or is it just... It's not going to be... It's not something we can now change because we're in the kind of death spiral. (laughs) Um, that that's a very depressing thought. That's why um, I wouldn't. Again, I wouldn't count it in, in in that sense. A lot of the things that that Gordon Brown and his government, uh, and I'd actually give a lot of credit actually to Alistair Darling um, over the period. And he had the best name. Indeed. Very black there. But the what they had there was they had a lot more wiggle room on interest mm. rates. They had a lot more wiggle room um, with regard to adding more cash from a QE perspective. 
you think you think even though we're we're living in the aftermath of that, in in retrospect, it's looked upon favorably historically as what went on there. I think versus what could have happened, then right. yes, we should look upon the actions that were taken favorably. They didn't get every decision right, and no government does, but they got the vast majority of the decisions right at the time. But, the, you know, I mean, they cut VAT and it didn't work. And I yeah. think they said the car scrappage scheme was, was, was a different tool that they utilised. It actually did work. In fact, it probably worked too well. What was um, that that people could... So you could put in, you could hand your car back in and it could be any old banger and you get £2,000 back Ooh. for a new okay. car. And it, and it, and it definitely uh, reinvigorated the, the, the car industry. Car industry. I mean, I'm, I'm spitballing here, but if you were a government and you were looking now at what levers you could pull to help alleviate people's uh, financial pressures, you would have to do something very drastic in terms of, you know, giving people 1500 to 2000 pounds towards their energy bills. To, you know, because that's what it's doubling to. Precisely, to compensate for To take for them back to the kind of two grand that they were paying before. But then it, would, then it would have to, because like, the government couldn't sustain that over any length of time. No. So the working assumption would then be that they would then reduce it over a, a number of quarters such that you get back to a point uh, within sort of four to six quarters where there's no, there's no further compensation. We're, we're, but, but if we did something, it's almost weird that we try and take an approach now that everyone's protected and that's the right thing to do but in in you know but in normal life if if you're living in this sort of slightly fake world then there's no change of behavior anyway so we just it's like we buy more plastic disposable yeah yeah keep buying keep buying everyone just keep buying but that's regardless of of what country you're talking about no, it in terms is. of everything has been 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 sustained by 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 two factors one you spoke about globalization globalization reduced prices and it helped us to just buy more stuff yeah um and it was one of the key drivers behind the significant improvement in living standards globally yeah so that so so you've got that the second element is that we've had this very prolonged period of very cheap credit yeah um and so everybody now is conditioned with the exception probably of the US because they did go through that period in 2017 2018 where they started raising interest rates, they got interest rates to three percent. So the US is probably less conditioned to yeah. the whole ideology of of ultra low interest rates. But you, you've got those two key drivers that have been been both a, a significant net positive in terms of uh, standards of living, but also a net negative in terms of economic stability. Yeah. Okay. But you can't pull the plug straight away. Or I don't believe that you can pull the plug straight away. You you think we've got to get back to a place of reasonable interest rates? Are we saying I don't know? What re- you know, five percent always felt like it was. You know, no, I don't think we're going to get there. I actually think that my view has been all along that interest rates would go up and they go up quite aggressively, but then they'd probably come back off quite aggressively as well, because the economy will adjust faster than the central banks understand or anticipate. Okay, right. So you're going to get to a point. Let's say US interest rates potentially get to 4%. Within the space of six months thereafter, if the US economy reacts negatively, and by the way, it's in a technical recession at the moment, if it reacts further negatively from there, then they could have interest rates back at 2% within the space of six months. With regard to the UK, we could have rates at two and a quarter, two and a half percent, but we could have them back at one and a quarter or 1% within the space of six to nine months. Okay. So I, I think that. Um, we're in for a period of quite 
substantial volatility in borrowing costs, both up and down. Um, the problem, I think, for central banks is, is that they don't know with any degree of certainty, A, where inflation will peak. They think they know, but I'm not 100% sure that they're, they're correct on that. Or indeed, um, how quickly it will come back. And and when central banks put up interest rates, that that they they I mean it, it's good news for them. They're going to get more income back. I guess they don't even see it like that. They just see it as a lever to lend money to other banks, effectively. But this then also affects the gilts that we're selling around the world. The bonds they're connected to these interest rates, are they? As we push them up to a degree, yes. Um, at the very short end of the curve. The, the further out you go, so the further the maturity, so beyond really about five years, uh, I don't think that interest, uh, the, the, the gilt yields are materially affected by interest rate expectations. They are affected to a degree, but not, not materially so. It then becomes the laws of supply and demand. Who wants to buy? Who wants to sell? Right. Um, I certainly think that the longer end of the maturity spectrum, so 10 years plus, those have been materially um badly affected or adversely affected by the fact that the government has announced that they're going to sell gilts back into the market direct. I think that has scared the market because... Uh, you said the Treasury do that anyway. They're the ones who sell gilts. No, the Treasury do, not the Bank of England. Oh, and you're saying the Bank of England announced it. So the Bank of England have amassed this stockpile and they're going to sell. Ah. The Treasury's also selling bonds at the same time because they need to finance themselves. Right. So there's... Mm potentially more coming. Okay, it's a sm small beer from the uh, from the Bank of England if they're doing 10 billion per six weeks. Um, but it'll still be material in terms of borrowing costs, particularly uh, at the longer end. Are British gilts popular internationally? I mean, wouldn't people always just buy American or whatever? No, I mean, you, you would look to buy a broad spread of risk. Okay, so you pick different countries that you think are stable, and we're doing a pretty good job at pretending we're not stable. I feel but, like we'd be a risky but investment. If you, yeah, if you talk to someone from the Ukraine or South Africa or something, okay. they, they kind of laugh at you a little bit. You know, they're like, you know. Well, uh, I, I mean, mean, would you would you classify um, UK gilt as more or less risky than Greek government debt or Italian government debt? <laughs> well, <laughs> nicely yeah. put. They win on the food, but maybe not on the bonds. Yeah. So, so you know, when investors, international investors, are looking, they'll be looking at at, at, at um, relative risk. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Clark got its start back in 1935 And while the world has changed a bit It's more than just survived From complying with the FCA And all things financy They can also speak fluently In the language of legalese Ori Clark was born and raised right here in the UK And now for 20 years They've been helping others get set up and on their way Ori Clark's door's always open and happy to provide straight talking financial and legal advice since 1935. Big shout out to Sean Veer Singh for a stellar jingle. You can find him at Sean Veer Singh Music on Instagram. And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review, please, on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. Now back to the chat. What do you think businesses should be doing or can do to try and mitigate the risks that are coming up? 
a lot of a lot of people look at this at the moment and saying, well, businesses need to batten down the hatches and and, and sort of prepare for the worst for the next eighteen months. There are plenty of businesses that are going to do, I think, reasonably well um, during this period of downturn because they'll they'll use it as the possibility to consolidate to go and buy companies that aren't performing as well as they are mm. um, and 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 deploy their capital that way. Survival so, of the fittest. Yeah, and instead of growing organically, they might be able to grow by acquisition. That would be nice, speaking as the lawyer in the room. It works for me. But I, th- but I think there's still going to be those opportunities and it may well, the, any economic downturn may well lower valuations and, mm. and valuation expectations. So I think there's that. There, there's that. Clearly, try and plan as best you can for 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 the uncertainty. So, don't have things that are uh, completely fixed. I think that that's a, that, that's another thing that we found from from an FX perspective that a lot of our clients are now looking at, uh, at deploying greater flexibility with regard to their currency hedging or even their interest rate hedging, where um, they're, they're they're looking at optionality. So, rather than being locked into something. They, they get a degree of flexibility over where they transact. But, but the other thing for businesses as well is that you've got, you know, you've got the ability to make business plans, but a lot of business plans get made once every three or five years and then get left in a drawer and never looked at again. Yeah. Mm. You should have a business plan that you're revisiting every quarter. Where are we versus that business plan? Right, what do we need, need to do in order to get back to where we want to be? Is there anything that we can do to get back to where we want to be? Or do we have to write a new business plan? That sounds like a lot of work, but those with the best planning, those with the, with the best contingency, will be the, will be the ones that, that that perform the best over the course of the next eighteen months. It feels like you need at the moment flexibility in everything, in like energy supply, like in in banking because of security risks and stuff. You know, I say to clients, you know, have more than one bank account because you know and you supply tr- chain. You as well. supply every bit of your supply chain. It's like you need to be analysing and saying, well. You know, we get all of this thing from this one person. Okay, well, we better start developing a new way or do it ourselves. You know, it's, and we, we've actually seen that. I mean, like, I won't name company names. But we went to see a company, and um, they had taken in house a manufacturing uh, part of their uh, of their supply, where previously they were going and sourcing it not from 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 the Far East, but from Europe. Yeah, because they then had control. They were they were much. More in control of of the manufacturer of that product, well, that's and Bre- therefore the Brexit, supply into I imagine. The- I mean, I've got an automotive client. At Brexit, it's just like just fucking them up so much. It, it was you know. no, it was actually a case of that that they they could get hold of the raw material, but they were finding that the company that was supplying them was um, becoming more selective about when they would supply, and oh, it became right. a much more price driven transaction. Yeah. So they just went, okay, it's going to cost us a bit more, but we've got the we've got the space. We can go and build another section within our manufacturing facility. And they went and did that. And it's been a tremendous success for them. And actually they've now got more consistent supply of that particular part, which means that there's no not not so much of a hold up in their process. That could mean that they're going to be uh, on the the offensive versus a lot of their other competitors who are perhaps taking more of their parts from overseas and seeing that interruption in the supply chain. You hope we see some of that upside from, you know, the complications of Brexit, but, you know, some upside is, yeah, we bring a few things back home. And the sunlit uplands that we were all promised. Yeah, yeah. But we, I mean, on the acquisition side, it'll also be interesting because it'll just make deals more interesting because, you know, back in 2007, 2008, um, 
at the company I was working for at the time, we sold um, a company to Coke. And 2007, 2008, very bad time to be selling anything. But we therefore structured it as a deal that that sold a little bit of it in 2008, a bit more in 10, a bit more in 12. And Coke admitted afterwards that they paid a lot more than they were expecting for the business. You know, because you have to structure it to get more flexibility and to get that longer time period and to get the sunlit uplands that you're hoping are there. And so that's going to be interesting and fun. It's, it's this sort of annoying thing that you kind of want to make all your money quick in one. You know, we were never in the right place at the right time to make our millions on Bitcoin or something. But the, rea- the reality is that you have to play a very strategic yeah. game. And, but if you, you know, can get a structure spread. where you... you, you either maintain control or you give away control of a company, but maintain the management so that you can pull the levers on a micro scale in the business, you you know, you hopefully can sell some of it, get a bit of cash in your pocket and then sell more of it in three years' time and make an absolute killing. Do you think, um, I mean, you, I don't know whether you, you, you're, you're pessimistic for the short term about Britain, you know, I think we'll, we'll work our thing out as a, as a world. But do you, do you think that sort of the capitalism as a whole is broken fundamentally and there's some, you know, fundamental new parts of it that need to be, I guess, invented or...? I don't think capitalism is broken. I do think that the uh, reaction function of governments and, and central banks has been targeted towards demand control. And they do need to focus a lot more of their attention on the supply side. And, 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 and that's something that has been obvious, really, for the last sort of 15 years or so. Focus more on understanding it or coming up with ways to manage it? or Well, both. I mean, first and foremost, understanding how to pull the levers on the supply side. Because we, we just haven't, we've been catastrophically bad what have we got? We could lower import duties. So we got a lever there, government lever. I mean, they slightly lower duties after Brexit. You know. But how, how do you, uh, number one, and it's not just a UK problem, it's a problem of the, the, the Western world. How do you actually get to a point where you can, can consistently raise levels of productivity? Yeah, it, can you grow forever is almost the question, isn't it? Can you? you and know. if you can't, then recognising that the deployment of more and more tax breaks is actually self-defeating rather than, rather than supportive of encouraging investment. So, so that, 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 that'd be one area that, that I think we need to, to revisit. And we need to revisit it actually quite quickly. But capitalism isn't broken in terms of it's the best system that we've, we've got. You look at the alternatives... And it's a no thank you from me, I'm afraid. Yeah, they're very successful, but it looks a bit scary. You know? It does make me wonder whether this is just it yet, because it feels like my entire working life has just been ricocheting from, you know, global disaster to... Glo- like, every 10 years or so, you get this recession. Mm. You know, 2008, 2022, you know... It feels like it's a trend that just is going to go on forever now. That's that's just the way it works. But the but but you talk about as ricocheting, but actually, if you look back, so you go back to the nineteen seventies, and and the nineteen seventies were really when the the West was was searching for direction. Mm-hmm. Could have gone in one of two ways, and they chose this um, adoption of monetary theory. 
to 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 really run run things. The West could have gone communism, really, or could have could have gone the direction well, it did. I mean, I mean, you know, we 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 faced some pretty difficult periods, um, some substantial periods of uh, of uh, labor unrest, etc. Um, we chose to go down the route of deploying uh, this pure monetarist theory. What could we have done instead? Well, we what, could what have, is a pure monetarist? Theory? So just using using um, interest rates. Yeah. Rather than using interest rates and fiscal policy, uh, and and so, oh, so, so okay. governments we took a backseat. Them. We disconnected them. Governments okay. took a backseat. They allowed central banks uh, virtually all of the power. Um, and I mean, if you look back to uh, the, the the government I remember was was Tony Blair's government. Yeah. Uh, of nineteen ninety seven. Things calm down, get, Pippa. Calm down. Things can only get better. <laughs> that was the song, wasn't yeah. it? But they came in. They that that they, they they suggested that they were going to do a lot of things, and actually, what they were doing was they were doing a lot of very small things fiscally. But at the same time, they were benefiting from globalization, which was lowering prices, yeah. allowing interest rates to go lower, allowing um, there to be a, a, a greater freedom as, as regard capital movement. And consequently, uh, the, you know, that w- w- was a juncture at which we could have spent more money, at least in the beginning, as far as fiscal policy was concerned. There were a lot of people then saying, oh, well, we should have fixed the roof whilst the sun was shining and everything mm-hmm. else on fiscal policy. I save, save money. But th- there was actually no need to. We had the lowest child poverty in, in the UK that we've ever had at the time uh, uh, because we had a chancellor who cared about starving children. Well, well yeah, yes and no, because I, w- I would say that, again, mm-hmm. Brown's, one of Brown's biggest mistakes was the removal of the 10p tax band. Okay. God, I don't even remember it, but I was an accountant there. We had 10p tax. We had, we had, we had a, a, a starting rate of tax of 10p. It was only a small, but it was meant to, it was only a small bracket, but it was meant to be a growing bracket per year. And then they took it away. And uh, I mean, it was a, it, from a PR perspective, it was a massive own goal. However, it, it was even more important in terms of that you were starting income tax at, like, so, so you had your zero tax rate. But you were then starting income tax at 10, 10p. Or what, like five grand a year or whatever or something? I don't even think it was that much. But um, but but it was critical in terms of, similar to what the Conservatives did when they came into power with the Lib Dems in coalition, when they said all of a sudden we're going to raise the uh, income tax threshold yeah. before you start paying tax. Yeah. It encouraged people into work. So that's why I think it was a mistake. Because you had this lever that you could have pulled, that you could have kept pulling on time and time again to mm. encourage people off how, of how welfare it, and into work. How does a 10% tax rate encourage anyone into work? Because you're keeping 90% of your money yeah. if, you're, oh, if, you're, yeah. if you're lower paid. Oh, oh, it depends what rate it started at. Okay. So, so you work, so the comparison was, I think, 22 or 23p. Yeah, mm. okay. Um, so you were paying, you were suddenly paying 10p on the first... So it made per- sense percent. to come off welfare, go into a job, but earn... Only a little bit more than welfare, but you were hardly paying any of it in tax. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the so 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 things like that. But going back to, to what we were talking about in terms of the supply side, one of the first contentions I I made was that this is a labour supply problem, which it is. Mm. You take a look at labour participation across the Western world, and it's low, and it's lower than it was when we went into the pandemic. So there is a shortage of labour for some reason. It's so crazy. So we need to be able to address that first. And again, adjusting 
income tax bandings and adjusting the, the, the level at which you start paying tax is a way of engineering higher levels of labour force participation, at least in the short term. That is incredibly interesting, given that pretty much every Prime Minister's questions that I've watched in the last kind of year, one of Boris Johnson's phrases is, we have more people in work. We have got more people back into work. Well, the, the employment's very high. It's the shortage of people is the problem. But we've got less people in work than we had before the pandemic. Yeah, that that this is one of the one of the problems is it's which set of figures you actually refer to. Yeah. yeah. And so you can be right and wrong in the same sentence. But but the, the point in fact is if you take a look at and I'll, I'll use the US as an example, you take a look at where US labor force participation was prior to the pandemic. Mm. It was about 1.3, 1.4 percentage points higher than it is now. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but that could be as much as like several million jobs. Yeah. And several million jobs spread out across a number of sectors, particularly at a time when you get a lot more short-term non-participation because of ill health, because of things like COVID, means that that's going to put a significant upward pressure on your cost of production. And do we have any clue why? Is it just, is it that, you know, what you seem to hear is, you know, the people in their 50s yeah, during yeah, COVID yeah. decided that they would, you know, go off and do something else or be self-employed? Or... I, I, I think that, that you've got several things going on. That, that may be one element of it. You had a lot more people that were electing to be self-employed and aren't. I actually think there's a tax issue around the introduction of, of, of new tax regulations around self-employment that may yeah. be in part responsible as well. But the, the honest answer is we don't know. Mm. as to why... Because they can't just have disappeared. No, I think it I mean, is. I think people... A are, lot of people died, but not that many. I think people have worked out they could live off less, they can they can cook at home, they could, you know, work three days a week, They you know, work-life balance. But I guess out of this, prices are going to go up and a lot of those people might be forced to reenact their jobs and go, well, this is all well and good. But and if you look at the the, the, the 20... 21 or 2022 census, I can't actually remember when it was conducted, versus the previous one, you will still see a lot more people over the age of retirement who are still in work yeah. as a proportion of the overall working population. So it's not necessarily explained by that either. Don't you find in life people are either they're out of 50... Or they just keep going for fucking ever. I find that. Are you thinking of... about your father by any chance? No, it's like when I meet people who've retired now, occasionally you meet someone who's like retiring early, you know, and they work to the big four and they're 55 and, you know, or something. I don't know. But, but now that now that, you know, health generally people's lifespans are a lot longer, you've got an awful if you retire at fifty five, that is a good kind of thirty years of kicking about. Yeah. I, I mean, I think in terms of the whole early retirement thing, I think a lot has been made of it, but actually I'm not sure the numbers back it up. Yeah. Um, so we might know people that have taken retirement and we, we, we look jealously on at them and think, oh, I wish I, I could do that. But I don't think as an overall proportion of the economy, and remember, you're probably talking about individuals that are reasonably well-paid, not your, your your sort of people that work in the healthcare sector, well, with some exceptions, clearly. Not people that work as teachers or, or necessarily 
in other areas of um, public employ. We don't know what working from home's done to productivity yet. I mean, the, the theory is that productivity goes up. I think it fucking depends what you're doing. I, I mean, again, I would also question this whole... We, we, we keep focusing, laser focus on productivity as if this is the solution to everything. Because we're always told we're bad at it. Then that's probably a yeah. media thing, isn't and, it? And, and, and I'm, I'm not sure that there, 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 there is any accurate measure of productivity out there. You know, I, I don't think that necessarily ours are accurately reported. I've always wondered how they try and work it out. I mean, they well, just it's, try output, and... it's output per hour, so it's, it's per person per hour. And we probably all bullshit about how many hours we did. We're all the British all oh, I worked terribly but, hard. My life's but, awful. But I would argue that that from a from a productivity perspective, I I, I don't believe that that um, an economy, if it was persistently underperforming on a productivity basis, it couldn't remain competitive. It doesn't make any sense. You look at who they compare us to, and it's like, hang on, I've been to that country. You know, they're, they're, none of them are doing anything. They have a siesta all afternoon, it's for God's what? sake. Yeah, I mean, you you know, you, you I know people who live, you know, well, maybe it's a, you have to also remember we're in London or, you know, maybe, you know, just outside. And London is a different place. Like, you need a lot of money to live in London. You know, it's relentlessly expensive. And, you know. Have you been to Oslo? Well, Oslo, <laughs> another place. Because I have just been to Oslo. <laughs> and oh my god, it was so amazing to come home. Yeah, but the, you know, there's lots of countries and people that you know you go and hang out with them, and you realise they can live on on very little. Okay, so we just they effectively the answer, you know, capitalism broken. They need to look at the supply side. They need to look at the whole picture more. I mean, um, I may just ask: Do you do you have to like draw pictures to try and work this out? I mean, you know, is, is you know how that. How does anyone even try and get their head around it? Do you sit on your own and try and get a head around it, or then do you just go and argue with someone particularly? Or well, my wife would tell you that I could argue with myself, um, <laughs> and it actually made it into my best man's wedding speech that, that I could argue with myself in a phone box. <laughs> so I don't really need anybody else on the on the other side of an argument. But and uh, I mean, in terms of oh, how do you get your head around it, I don't think there is actually a way of getting your head around it in terms of that you'll never. It's a bit like golf. You'll never master it. There's always something that new that will come up that will surprise you. Mm. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that economics is really bad at, is adapting. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're still looking at the same theories that we were looking at 40, 50, 60, maybe even 100 years ago. There are some that are much better than others to follow. But overall, if I look at the, the sort of way in which economics is studied... It hasn't really changed, and and I think that's that's why it's difficult to get your head around all of, all of these topics because you, you you're still looking at the same textbook that you were looking at thirty years ago. It might have been rewritten to the thirteenth edition or something, but still got exactly the same data in it. And new stuff happens, I guess, like the GFC or whatever, and then everyone sort of. You know, it takes years getting their head around what just happened. Well, you mentioned Bitcoin, uh, and 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 I mean, <laughs> we have been through this through the centuries. We had the South Sea China bubble. We had tulipomania. Mm. You know, we've had so many. You know, the and great. Is that your view on the the Bitcoin? Is, Absolutely, is bull, bubble bullshit. Well, oh. well, I mean, what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin's printing money that wasn't there before. Yeah. Aren't okay, we, and, I, and, and I no, but but I said it, uh, <laughs> like quite uh, close to the beginning here. If you tried it, you'd be arrested and thrown in jail. Yeah. Okay. So how can somebody get away 
with creating something that doesn't exist and then saying it does exist and not be thrown in jail. Yeah. That's, and, and how many of these, these sort of cryptos are now in existence? There must be thousands. hundreds, yeah. thousands. Maybe hundreds of thousands. Does any, anybody really know where they came from? Could I start a cryptocurrency tomorrow and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll yeah, call it totally bubble. Yeah, you totally could. And, 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 and there'd, months, be, yeah. there'd, be, there'd be somebody willing to pay me also, money for that. just to be clear, Bubble's a brilliant name. Oh, <laughs> you should go and do it well, right now. Well, that's probably, by the way, that's trademarked. Um, <laughs> but, but no, but this is the whole point. With, with things like this, that has come along and that took the, the, the global financial market by surprise. And everybody, when Bitcoin first came onto the scene, and I was guilty of this as, said, as well, I said, it won't last. Give it 18 months. And then 18 months later, it had gone up colossally in value. I said, no, no, it's not going to last. Give it another sort of three years or so and it'll all be over. The fact of the matter is, it's still around and it's worth $20,000 plus a Bitcoin. Yeah. Do you not find that when you try and look at normal, okay, we look at normal money, normal banks, economics and all that, you know, you look at all that data, that that... That sort of is just a trust system. It doesn't make sense and they're printing money anyway. And it's sort of, it's all like, you know, it, it, what, it, is it not all just sort of, you know, on analysis? I, I would suggest that, that there are rules, there are around, rules. around the creation of assets. Uh, and, and, Hard-learnt rules, I guess, and yeah. laws. And, and, and that, that's the thing, that it's rules and law or the rule of law that means that we just, basically aren't eating ourselves um, over these sorts of things. When you start to introduce these uh, these things out of the ether, I think it, it becomes a, a real risk to financial stability, much more so than actually the global financial crisis is. Because you've got people that have, in effect, bet the farm on these sorts of things to, to generate huge pots of wealth. But actually, the vast majority of people are going to lose. Yeah. yeah. And they're going to lose everything. Because the government won't have a duty to support them. So no, because there's it's, no system there. It's the know. Wild West. Yeah. Mm. And so uh, there, there is a place actually, for alternative investment, but it needs to be regulated and it, ne it needs to be properly monitored and measured. Yeah. And, and that's, that those are some of the things that are lacking because there isn't the transparency in these crypto, in a number of these cryptocurrencies. I can't say for everyone because I haven't looked at everyone. But you would argue that these things hold no intrinsic value. Yeah, but Ethereum does the network. You know, that's it's got some utility. Well, we spoke to, to that woman, didn't, didn't we? And she seemed to think that Bitcoin was actually just a giant Ponzi scheme that's going to go pop, but that Ether, Ethereum, you know, Ether, has not smart Ethereum, contracts that has a sort of tangible value. So you know, but based on what? So if I was to give you a ten pound note, mm. on that ten pound note is printed, I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of £10. Yeah. Now, it used to say goods to the value of the sum of £10, but they got the rid Bank of, of England because we had... kept having to hand out bags of crisps. Well, no, but, <laughs> but, but you've also got a lot of services involved now, so it's not goods anymore. But, yeah. but in any case, like, so, 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 so it is, in effect, a promissory note. Yeah. yeah. 
But it holds value based on the value of the economy. So it's based against the value of the economy. It's based on the number of notes in circulation, notes and coins in circulation. It's based on assets held by the central bank. Do you not, do you, do you not feel, though, you, you, the, these bitcoins were created out of the fact of this loss of faith in the banking system, which, frankly, you know, there's been pretty shitty things that went on about, you know, just big bets and all of that. But, you know, ironically, the governments then backed it up and supported the, the banking system. So it didn't fail, with notable exceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in, in essence, is it not, though, that with things like quantitative easing and things like not really having any gold reserves and doubling, you know, whatever the ratio is that banks were starting to lend internationally and Iceland went into another level, that has just made everyone doubt, just say, it's bullshit anyway. So, you know, what? But, Let's create our own bullshit. You know? No, no, but but what what you're describing there was a regulatory failure, which has been corrected. You feel? Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. Because they separated the uh, retail from the uh, commercial. No, no, it was a regulatory failure in terms of the that um, the levels of capital reserves were allowed to be run extraordinarily low, such that a small adjustment in the global financial system in an adverse way put a lot of have we put capital reserves back up, have we? Yeah, Over. absolutely. Okay, well, are they well, back up to the levels of, they're not back up to the 30s. We sold our gold reserves, but that's no, the no, thing. No, sorry, because again, we're not looking at what the Bank of England is is holding, but the Bank of England, by the way, is holding an absolute uh, huge stockpile, you know, th- similar to the but- butter mountain of the EU of the 1990s, <laughs> 1980s and 90s. Oh, is it of gold these days? Uh, no, not gold, but of other assets. Right. And so, like they they hold a lot a, a huge stockpile of assets. They also require banks to hold a lot more in terms of their own near cash assets. And what percentage these days is it? Um, there's no there's no fixed percentage, ah, but okay. it's in double digits. And and going back to the financial crisis, a lot of financial organisations had them in low single digits. And, and Iceland, famously, because I was very I, very low single. Well, digits. They, so they the guys sort of basically worked out that everyone's reserves were bullshit, so we don't need any. So they didn't really have any. You know. Well, again, I, I I'm not a hundred percent sure <laughs> I agree with that. I I I think this where, is based where, off bar conversation. <laughs> where Iceland got it got it very wrong is that that actually a lot of the the economic miracle of the Icelandic economy came off of long dated fishing contracts yeah which were then utilized to to create additional lending capacity and 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 borrowing capacity which was then deployed in buying some pretty high profile assets overseas yeah. Including things like House of Fraser. Yeah. And I think an investment in West Ham Football Club as well. Yeah. But but ultimately the the those investments never paid off right. in the way that it was hoped. So we've got to hang on to this memory, though. Fiscal policy gets loosened because everyone forgets and then we start saying well, everything's all right. Well, no, you know? we, what we need to hang on to like is that there are two sides to the, the running of an economy. There's the monetary policy side of it, but there's the fiscal policy side of it. And fiscal policy um, under John Maynard Keynes was introduced as an adjustment mechanism. When things got bad, you pulled the lever on fiscal policy, you pumped money into the economy, you cut taxes or spent more money. But when the economy was doing well, you hit the brake. Governments over the last 40 years, have pumped money in when the economy's gone well and pumped more money in when the economy's mm. gone badly. Yes, yes. So 
you you were talking about the 1970s being a point at which we chose to to effectively go with a, a pure monetary approach. pure monetary approach where you just change interest rates up and down. Mm. Do we need an entirely new economic theory? No, we we, we just need to 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 go back to to running things on a uh, a more even keel with regard to both fiscal and monetary policy. But neither fiscal nor monetary policy should be used as a sledgehammer. We're actually beyond the point where we, we can row back on the uh, interest rate increases that have been implemented. Uh, there's now the suggestion, and Gordon Brown said it, and a few other central bankers, or former central bankers have said it, where they want fiscal policy to be working in direct disagreement with monetary policy. So monetary policy is tightening at the same time that fiscal policy is loosening. Now, that won't work. So, so meaning we put interest rates up, that's monetary policy, and fiscal policy is, right, we panic spend, as government. Spend more money or reduce taxes. But the fact of the matter is, is that you're pulling, lever, or, pulling or pushing levers in opposite directions. It doesn't work. Right. Or it won't work. Um, and so why are they suggesting that? Gordon Brown suggesting this? Well, because ultimately the Bank of England is now operationally independent and therefore will continue to tighten monetary policy and they're looking at something that will counterbalance that yeah. to try and mitigate the worst effects of it. So they're fighting against each other instead of going in tandem? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And, and you know, is there somebody out there who you can kind of point to and say yes, I totally respect what they're saying about the economy. Let's all listen to them. Yeah, whose Twitters do you follow? <laughs> um, I mean, to be honest, no. Uh, there isn't somebody that I completely respect because I always think that you need to to be able to have a, a reasonable amount of cynicism about anybody's opinion. I totally agree with that. The, the economics, is it a bit like science, the community, that you all kind of go, well... So, so you possibly won't have heard of this person, but the person that I most respect... Um, was a former boss of mine. It was oh. a lady called Marion Bell. She trained me um, when I first started working for Royal Bank of Scotland before we became NatWest. And uh, and she is the person that I would most respect with regard to her economic knowledge, as far as I was concerned, was second to none. She knew a lot of very influence, uh, influential people within the, the world of economics. She went on to become a member of the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England. Uh, and so it is her opinion that I respect most. Is she still working in the bank or...? No, no, no. And I, I think that's a tremendous shame. Um, but then again, um, talking about people that have gone on to do bigger and better things, she stopped working for the bank when she went to work and then went to work for the Bank of England. So, okay. it's hardly... so she's possibly in the right place then? Well, she was. I mean, she only did um, did one term. At how the bank how many people sit around that table? It's eight or something? Nine. 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 So there are five uh, internal members of the Bank of England and then four external members. So for a while, anyway, the person you mo opinion you most respected was at the table. Yes. You know, you could drop her a text, could you, after you heard no. an announcement and be like, fucking hell, love, hell? Put, put, your, put, your, put your shoulder behind the wheel. These people have lost it. No, absolutely not. And, and, and <laughs> when she was part of the Bank of England, um, we were living in a far calmer world. I mean, we, we did go through, obviously, some fairly tumultuous times um, during the, the, the very beginning of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee because we had things like the, um, the dot-com 
bubble and then crash. We had September the 11th. We had all mm. of the earnings restatements. So it was a, it was still a pretty interesting time, but probably less volatile. I think it's a bit like in England when the summer happens, we can't imagine the winter's ever here. And then when the winter's here, you can't imagine that it's ever going to get hot but again. But winter is coming. But winter, is this well, what you're my, saying? No, no. You know, uh, Pop said it the other day. <laughs> that's as that's an 80-year-old eight, eight, man, he said... He announced all this stuff. He said, you know, I know everyone's worrying about what's going on, but I can tell you in my life, I have never known a period when there wasn't some shit happening. And then you but sort of go through it thing. and it's like, boom, yeah. boom, 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 you know. So, I mean, if you if you think back to, to periods of, of really significant upheaval in the globe's history, and I'm thinking to the First and Second World War, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, these were events that could have financially bankrupted countries because of the amount of money that was being spent. And in well, fact, I guess did. Did. Did, did for Germany. Yeah. So, I mean, when you look at what we're facing now and the challenge that we're facing now, you know, from a, from a financial perspective, it pales into insignificance to, th- to the, financial, the financial realities that they were facing back in the, in, in the um, early 20s and then in the, in, in the uh, mid to late 40s. I find it so fascinating, though, that... North, uh, South Korea or Germany or Japan, name a country that got bankrupted and destroyed and they became the most powerful economies, you know, in the world. Well, I would still argue today, Japan, South Korea, Germany are serious players. Well, you know, Japan was almost going to be China for a while, you know, and then I don't know, I don't know. But, you know, Too small, the, mate. It, yeah, but it's the irritating thing. It's like, well, if you want an economy to really flourish, destroy it. And then it let it. I'm not. I'm not advocating really this. Worked, hasn't really worked for Venezuela, for Argentina, from for Zimbabwe. Listen, but I, I'm going to say something messed up. Is that um, uh, well, you, you, you know, yeah, I guess. But South America is like such a new country. It's like it, it, the whole plate. A lot. Most of the countries in South America are really lost in where they're going. You know, and and actually, Africa has the same thing. They're such young countries. You know. Although I, I, I mean, I would say that if you if you look at places like Africa. Um, I think that there is a tremendous amount of potential in 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 that as a 100%. continent. Yeah, um, it's and, really and I'm fascinated by the fact that they are adopting technologies that we don't even have. Yeah, in terms of that, they don't dig big cables into the ground and have like broadband hubs in their homes and it's all done over big Wi-Fi stations and everything else and that's how they conduct business. And they've managed to work out and run an almost an entire economy on GPRS, you know, old-fashioned text technology. People mm. have like reversed engineered the shit out of that and it turns out it's super efficient and, you know, and there's some real upside, you know. So, so, so you know, when people say, oh, you know, this is going to be terrible and, and look how bad it's going to be for, for the, the Western world. I'd actually say, well, well, hold on a minute. The challenges being faced by a number of countries in Africa mm. are, are essentially far greater. You know, famine uh, and everything that that, that that has ripped through there in, in in recent decades, and yet they've come through that. And the, and although it's not for the entire population, there's a sizable subset of the population that have flourished. So, I think we can we we can take a lot of hope from that. We just want it to be as fair as possible is always the thing, isn't it? Yeah, but, where, but where there is sufficient motivation, there, there, there's never been greater motivation than a lot of these African countries that have survived some of the, 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 the most devastating floods and famines, etc. Wars. Uh, and wars. 
um, you know, and, and yet they've they've come out of this the the other side. So that, that there's got to be hope that we're only talking about a modest reconstruction mm. of the Western developed world to try and uh, and fix some of the, the the sort of overhang of problems that have been created over the last 40, 45 years. It's hardly you know on a, on a parallel to what we're talking about in in those countries. And believe me, in the next 30 years, there's going to be a huge further leap forward in terms of African development. You know, you know that is the that is the continent that that I'm probably the most optimistic about. Oh, yeah, I agree. In certain countries, are really getting their shit together now. You know, they're really coming along. But they, you know, they are, I suppose, starting from a a lower base right now, right? But they are. But I mean, let's be clear here that the investment returns that they are able to generate are on a par with the investment returns that other developing countries within Asia were mm-hmm. generating when they started out. And you, you've only got to look at places like the Philippines or, or Thailand or Indonesia and the amount of economic development that they have enjoyed from that, yeah. that very low base. So yeah. it can actually snowball very quickly. Weird, weirdly, I think, you know, it's sort of nationalism is almost a dirty word thanks to Hitler. But, you know, they, they, in a way... I can't these, believe these, we've got this far without yeah, Hitler coming into the these, conversation. These countries are very new, you know, and they're all trying to find that identity. And, you know, Africa was half drawn out by pissed British people who wanted to go for lunch with, you know, rulers and just like, oh, well, we'll chop it up like that. That will be all right. And, you know, it's been such a complex journey for them. But, you know, once you sort of have the football team and then everyone starts being a bit more like, right, we're a country. I'm I'm from Ghana. I'm, you know, this is my nationality. I mean, that's, that's sort of part of this journey that it all then sort of starts coming together that it's not... Because if you're fighting internally, you're fucked, aren't you? I mean, we're starting to fight again internally. Yeah, at what point do you bring in the law that says if you're unpatriotic, Patriotic, you well exactly. You, you don't want to be no, too nationalistic no. at the same time, but that you know ultimately you've got to be on a team. You but if know? You, if you look at, at this in terms of let, let's look closer to home um, with regard to the European Union, and actually for all of their differences, the European Union tend to sing from the same hymn sheet when it mm. comes to big things, and and uh, and and so they can they can have their internal squabbles. But when it comes to something sizable, it's like, no, this is what we're doing. And if it means that a few countries get told to to get into yeah. line, then 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 so be it. So I think the European Union has been a, been actually a tremendous success in terms of that consistent messaging. Okay, there are there have been cracks appearing recently. I guess you could say for the same for the United States of America. With and the all same its for forms, the United Kingdom been, as well. It's been, well, historically, United, no, the United Kingdom has been an incredibly successful partnership. Ever since we put Scotland in and it, it like, certainly when it became Britain, it was that huge move forward because it was like, you know. But with, but with regard to the, like going back to the whole globalization piece, in order to be successful in a, in a global economy, you will have to be pulling in the same direction. Which is what, although Europe is seeing its its global share of GDP dropping, it's dropping much more slowly than the likes of the UK. <laughs> Brexit was such a good idea. The, but no there's doubt. a lot. There's a lot to be said in terms of like getting everybody consistent on messaging. Also, one one of the things I I, I throw in as well, going back to the whole fiscal policy thing for a second is don't keep chopping and changing fiscal policy. Don't make it hard for businesses um, to plan. 
to properly mm. plan for taxation or, or, or levels of expenditure. If you were consistent with regard to fiscal policy for a period of sort of five years, where you weren't mucking it about all of the time. So true, really help. But it, you, I was going to ask you this question earlier. It's like, you, you know, you decouple monetary policy from the government. You almost, and I think to some extent, technically, the the, um, the, finance, um, the treasury is slightly separate in some sort of technical way, but you almost feel like fiscal policy, I mean, it can't be, but it almost needs to be on a longer time scale, slightly separated from the politics, you know. Politics is always going to be jammed Yeah, you today. can't, you can't yeah. do it, basically. No. Because uh, you, you you never have enough time um, as a government to implement. You don't know that you're going to get re-elected. Yeah, because no. 12 years is quite a long time. No. Um, but they didn't know that. They were, I mean, no. like, you know, we got to 2015 and it looked for all the world that Ed Miliband was going to win um, oh, no. in a lot of the polling sort of four or five months out from the from, from the actual election. Even the polling on the day wasn't And then conclusive. there was that bacon sandwich and it all went to hell no, and No, I, I, think, I think people made, made an awful lot of that, whereas actually the ground campaign that the Conservatives ran mm. were, was, was truly a, a, a thing of efficiency. It's simple messaging too, which is really sad these days that none of us can deal with it. Well, it's all too complicated. But, the, but, but, but in terms of sort of... You know the, the 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 way that the the UK has gone or is going um, is is one where we don't have that consistency in fiscal policy. The, we never have, though. No, and I, and, and, and we. I would disagree. Be, I would disagree. I, I mean, I think we went through um, a period again, nineteen ninety seven through to around two thousand three, two thousand and four, where there was a pretty consistent fiscal message. I think if you look back to the early phase of um, the 1980s Conservative government, there was a pretty consistent fiscal message then. I think under the first term of Harold Wilson, there was a pretty... Do you think now it's not consistent because it's all changing so fast? No, I think it's because it's too, it's too easy for the leader of the day to say, well, we must do something. Yeah. Um, mm. Like... And, and, well, the and conversation's the, turned around in terms of how information is flowing. You know? I, I think there's not enough focus on the diagnosis of what is wrong. Right. Just throwing everything at the patient in the hopes that one of it cures it. Yeah. Here's every drug that we have. Um, and so I, do you think they should pump out? Because by the time we work out whether we should give money people for their energy bills that's significant, I mean, isn't it just take too long... Yeah, but again, going if you actually trace this back, there were things that were done previously. Number one, they knew going back to 2021, they knew that raising national insurance could have an adverse impact on the, the, the economy. It would also have an inflationary effect in terms of the cost base for companies. And they had the, 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 the chance, the option of not doing it. So even six weeks out, there was huge lobby from the likes of the CBI and so on and so forth to say, don't do it, because we think from an economic standpoint, no, forget about the politics and the optics mm. for a second. Let's just look at the, the economics. It doesn't add up. Not at this point, not at this juncture. And they still did it. So there was a policy error there. There's actually a very good book, um, and it's called The Blunders of Our Governments, and so it's not party political because it talks about all governments and the mistakes that they make and the colossal cost of these sorts of things. So it's a good read in terms of it, it, it demonstrates that 
Governments go into things with the best of intentions, but the solution doesn't necessarily match the intention. Yeah. The sad thing that's not happening, which I hope to happen when you have a government, is you have lots of really clever people and you put them in the room with the information and give them lots of coffee in a couple of months and say, tell us what the fuck to do about it. But well, in fairness, what... they did that with COVID. They in did fair, in fairness, they did that with COVID and, 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 and a lot of governments faced something that they never faced in, in modern history. Do you think history. Richie did an all right job in, 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 in that? <sighs> People will criticise in terms of it's very easy to give money away and it's much harder to take it back. Yeah. But faced with the situations that, that we were faced with, they made a good set of initial decisions and then they, they kind of prevaricated on, should we take it back? Should we extend it? There, were, that, there, yeah. there, there, there was a lot of second guessing that took place. Yeah. You can't really blame them for that because they were in a, an unprecedented situation. In the same way as you can't blame Gordon Brown like in the financial crisis, for getting a few things wrong, but getting the majority of the things right. I mean, if, if the government can't sort it all out um, and they can't do it with a fiscal policy, then we can do more, I think, or the rich could do more. I mean, do you, do you have an opinion on whether you feel that we need to develop more of a culture of maybe philanthropy, so giving to local, smaller organisations, if government can't sort it out, or do you think government can sort it out and run themselves properly and, you know? I, I wouldn't put it as an either-or. I, I would say that I think you can have, you can have both. Um, and remember, government is there um, to provide public goods where they otherwise wouldn't be provided. But philanthropy can't replace where, uh, in every area where government perhaps has to intervene. So I think, you, you know, I don't want to sit on the fence, and this is probably the first time that I have in a long while, but I, th I think there's a place for, place for both of it. I mean, I would certainly argue that, um, there, that, that there is a problem in a society where somebody that's employed by a billionaire potentially could pay more tax um, because we're not taxing assets if, um, in, in the same way as we tax income, so they can plus they can live anywhere. You know. Yeah. Um, so so there there is an issue with regard to that, but I'm not sure. I mean, I'm certainly not qualified, even as an economist, to suggest a solution of how you rectify that, because again, we're going back to a global economy problem, and unless there is a global response, then there will always be somebody out there, country out there, that is prepared to look the other way. Yeah. Mm. So it's not a UK problem, but I, I mean, where there is philanthropy, we should we should encourage it and uh, and we should applaud it. Um, I think there are a, a lot of um, philanthropists from the tech world at the moment that uh, they're trying to do their best. I'm not sure that the reaching for the stars um, yeah. in terms of uh, space travel is necessarily the best deployment of capital. But really, you um, surprised me. But but ultimately, let you know. Let, let, let's, let's not forget, forget space ice cream. Eh? That was delicious. <laughs> but but you want the wealth generation in order that they are philanthropic, rather than we just don't seem to have a culture of it. It's partly, why I'm, I'm sort of raising it. I don't think I disagree. I, I disagree. I think I think if you look at a lot of uh, people that are on middle or higher incomes, they are actually very generous in terms of what they give to charities. What's actually missing is those kind of like, you know, those American titans of industry, the Carnegies and the, you know, 
all the, these people that made huge, huge yeah. amounts of money and then endowed things and gave their money away. And the mega rich nowadays don't seem to have the same. Again, I, I would disagree. I, I think you? there are there are plenty of examples if you go through the Times Rich list of very philanthropic um, people that are giving away a large sum of their wealth. I just, yeah, it feels like almost it's, um, it, it, maybe it would right some wrongs, but then none of us know who to give the money to because we don't really like giving it to the government because they don't do a brilliant job. And there are also so many uh, worthy causes that we're talking about here that that actually you're distributing cash to a huge number of, of, of worthy causes, which looks as if you're diluting um, the amount of money that you're giving, but you're, you know, you're, you're just trying to, to fill every bucket. So there you have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Thank you to Neil for joining us. Thank you to my co-host Andy. And a big thank you to you, dear listener. And we'll be back with BWB on Thursday. Until then... It's ciao.